Hello, and welcome to The Violet Vulture. My name is Emmy, and I'm your host. I'm a multi-passionate, multidisciplinary storyteller. I'm a death doula, witch, and an all-around too-much person. If I could distill down into a core three about what I'm all about here on the internet and IRL, it's storytelling for self-exploration and liberation, alternative wellness for the misfits and morbidly inclined among us, and honoring our shadows. But to go a little bit deeper, we cover discussing mortality, celebrating spirituality, archetypes, and artists, unpacking what horror can teach us about the human experience and our collective fears, exploring how we could better integrate those shadows, and one of my favorite topics, changing our damn mind, doing something different. A couple of announcements here. You want to keep the conversation going, you can keep up with me on Instagram at LaSoyEmmy, my website SoyEmmy.com, or you can add it to my newsletter. You can also send me voice messages through my podcast distributor, Anchor. So lots of different ways to keep in touch. I hope to keep seeing you on the internet. Before we get cracking, we're wrapping up our mini series here on Dialogues with Spiritual Leaders. I'll be reworking a little bit of my schedule and the launch of a few things I, I wish I had already announced by now, but due to a death in the family, the holidays are fast approaching, and I'll be starting a new job. This just had to happen. So just reworking a handful of things for the rest of November and December to better accommodate all of this rapid change. So instead of rolling things out kind of as intended, everything is more or less shifting by about a week. So Keep your eyes on IG, your email for what I'll be dropping next week and in the coming weeks. Something that I am actively trying to undo or unlearn is that you can always say no, even over the holidays. That a no is a yes to protecting your peace. It's so easy for your calendar to get full over the holidays and then you put out before Christmas even shows up. And then you wonder if you even enjoyed any of it. And I feel like it's at the end of every holiday season, you go, oh, next year I'll do it differently. And, and then you don't. So I, I would like to offer before we hit Thanksgiving next week, and then Christmas, everything hits us full force thereafter. I, I challenge you to make sure that you make some real room for you. A little corner of something that's your own ritual, practice, like yoga practice, uh, maybe cycling or like a winter run. That could be so much fun. Art practice, whatever feeds you. And don't be afraid of canceling or changing your mind about whether you're up for something or not. We're all about changing our mind on this podcast. So let's all put that into some intentional action this season. But anyway, without further ado, let's get on to today's episode. All right. Hello and welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Violet Vulture. Today, I have a special guest on the podcast. She is a bi-furious recent grad of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago a current PhD student at the Chicago Theological Seminary, the campus pastor of South Loop Campus Ministry, and an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Ms. Al Dowd, and I'm so happy to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Al. Yes, thanks, Ami. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. It's been a joy to not just become friends with you, but to see how your work has evolved. The other thing that I did not read off, but as I learned, if you if you look up her name on Spotify, a bunch of things pop up, <laughs> mostly um, the book that um, they published with Broadleaf, Baptized in Tear Gas. I love this book title so much, and I know that you really, you really advocated pretty hard for it. But yeah, could you speak a bit about your book? I don't want that to be the core focus because clearly you talk about it a lot. Sure. Yeah, but I can give like a little intro. So um, the the book is Baptized in Tear Gas from White Moderate to Abolitionist. And that subtitle, From White Moderate 
is a reference to MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail where he writes, you know, that the the biggest obstacles to racial liberation and to progress are not is not necessarily like the KKK member or sort of these like overt racists, right? But it's actually the white moderate who says, you know, we agree with kind of what you're doing, but could you please ask more nicely? Could you please slow down? Could you please do this in a way that's more comfortable for me? So the subtitle, um, Baptizing Tear Gas from White Moderate to Abolitionist, is about my own personal transformation from a white moderate to an abolitionist. I grew up in the suburbs of Des Moines, Iowa, in a very overwhelmingly white suburb and you know like we didn't really talk about race and racism and if we did we very much talked about it like it was in the past uh we talked about racism if we talked about it at all as something super hyper individualized like internalized individualized bias we didn't do like power analysis or talk about the way that racism and white supremacy have infected our institutions right so um i definitely Growing up, always thought I cared about justice because of some of my own identities and experiences, even as a white woman or at that time a white girl. But I had deeply internalized a lot of this stuff in white culture around tone policing, respectability politics, really narrow ideas of peace and discomfort with tension. And so that was really challenged and changed in me when I was in St. Louis, Missouri, during the Ferguson uprising after the murder of Michael Brown by uh, police officer Darren Wilson. And so this book is part memoir, part theological reflection, part kind of like love letter to my comrades. And it kind of chronicles that transformation. And uh, the hope is, you know, obviously anyone can read the book, but the target audience is definitely sort of like nice churchy white women who like think they are I don't know, liberal or left of center or progressive, but aren't really sure like how to get started or how to really put their bodies on the line for racial justice or to show like true solidarity with BIPOC folks. So that is, that's the book. And I don't make any money off the book. Uh, all of the sales of the audiobook, ebook, and print book all go to Black activists and liberation organizations, bail funds, and, um, family members who've lost loved ones to state violence. So yeah, that's the book, Baptizing Tear Gas. Thank you so much for that. And having followed you a lot online, like the whole promoting a book is so hard. Right. But I feel like you showed up for it so beautifully. And in part because I think it's not just about you. I think that makes it a little bit easier sometimes. But at the same time, that sense of like responsibility, because it's more than just your story like really want to do justice to that yes. is a different kind of of anxiety or like sense of responsibility to making sure that you're promoting mm-hmm. it the best way possible. Yeah. And there's like a sense of vulnerability too, you know, like sort of putting things out there. And so much of the book, you know, like as I've just summarized, it was like, honestly airing out a lot of my like really fucked up internalized biases airing out like a lot of the mistakes that I made. Um, And so in that way, it was pretty vulnerable. But the hope was not that I would like, you know, enter into the space or the conversation as some sort of, I don't know, white expert in anti-racism, because first of all, I don't really think that's a thing. And secondly, even if there were sort of white experts in anti-racism, that wouldn't be me. Like my hope was to be Um, a companion on the journey for other white spiritual progressives, particularly in mainline Protestant denominations, but not necessarily exclusively. My hope was that sort of in vulnerably sharing my own process, my own challenges, my own mistakes, that other people could also enter into that reflection. We could really learn together. And I hoped to really amplify and build bridges because so many white folks, myself included, for a long time, really don't have connections or access to some of these really radical black liberationists voices theory all that stuff and so in a lot of ways I hoped to be a bridge there to say you know the preface of my book is basically like stop reading this book and go read all these other books first right by black authors so part of the hope was to 
amplify the people who taught me both sort of in the academic realm and sort of thoughts, thought leader realm, but also the activists in Ferguson and St. Louis on the ground to share their stories in a place that perhaps other white Christians would not necessarily hear those stories. Absolutely. And I think that's so important because I think when we consider this kind of call to like people should be more educated, I think I I know that you do still push others Mm -hmm. to explore elsewhere, but I, I do believe that there needs to be like a touchstone for people who are beginning to kind of get acclimated, not to necessarily like do the Robin D'Angelo thing of like be pandering, (laughs) which I immediately thought of as you were talking, like I'm not an anti-racist educator. I'm like, yeah, thank God for that. (laughs) Cause yeah, I, this does kind of make me wonder too. Something I've been sitting on is like, where does that responsibility lie around education? But I think that ultimately Mm -hmm. the key is Mm -hmm. like mutual accountability, like knowing what is your thing to shore up on versus kind of leaving it to other people to lean, you know, not lean on, but there will be a certain degree of yes needing to be explained to, but I think you you do a really great job in your work of of being challenging, something that I felt with organizers historically um, in the past, and I've I've met better people since then, is if you're not doing some things a certain way, then you're not really an organizer. Or the splitting of hairs of like activist versus <laughs> organizer. If you're an activist, then you're you're not being as radical as you could be sure and that sucks because like we're we're both chronically ill babies there's some things that our body simply will not let us do Mm -hmm. so yeah I feel that gatekeeping really really gets me yes yeah 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 I think that makes sense I think too like when you talked about like the mutual accountability piece and how important that is and sort of knowing when like what is I don't always love um, you know, when people say like, you know, what is your lane or stay in your lane or whatever. But in this case, I think it actually makes sense of like, what is the work for me to do as a white person? And what is the work for me to create space or pass the mic or whatever? And I think I tried in this project and in general um, to discern that, but I didn't discern it on my own, right? I discerned it within communities of accountability. So before I even um, wrote this book, I actually had a lot of hesitancies writing this book at all. Because I was like, I can only share my story. But if I share my story during the Ferguson Uprising, I'm centering a white woman in the middle of this historic uprising for Black liberation, which is like, there is no way to make that not problematic, right? So I talk, I spoke with activists in St. Louis and Ferguson, um, activists here in Chicago, and organizers that I'm accountable to, particularly uh, Soul, Southsiders Organized for Unity and Liberation. And I was like, should I do this? If I do this, like, what is the best way to do this, right? Or what should I avoid? Um, and also, you know, paid Black women in particular to do some of the work of advising me, even on sort of like the, ed- the editing level, right? To like go through with a fine tooth comb and be like, help me make this project live into its intentions because, you know, Inter- my internalized bias is still present. It's not like, it's not like I suddenly just like woke up and that I wasn't internalized. I wasn't socialized in a white supremacist society. So I think that that community accountability is a huge piece. And what I learned from speaking to the black activists and organizers that I am in relationship with is that the ways, the times to pass the mic is that black folks are obviously the experts on black liberation and also, you know, our collective liberation in general in many ways. So as far as like the nitty gritty of what is liberation, how do we do this? What is the strategy? I 100% defer to black activists and organizers. And of course, they're not all of one mind about this, but that is a space where I sort of try to leverage and amplify those voices. The part that is sort of my piece that only I can offer or I can offer in a particular way is my own story of transformation. So as far as like folks educating about anti-racism, black folks are the experts on that. Folks educating on abolition, again, black folks, activism, liberation, as much as I can connect people to those voices, amplify those voices, they're the experts on that. But for white people who are venturing into this work, 
Black folks actually are less able to talk about what does it feel like as a white person to do this sort of deconstructing, this unlearning, what are the tensions, what are the challenges? And so my small piece of the work is to testify to my personal transformation and the tensions and mistakes there, right? So it's kind of like all the good ideas are from Black folks. And then really what I can share is this is how it felt for me in my body, in my heart, in my mind. This is how it affected my relationships. Perhaps you're going through this too. Here's some things that I learned. What are you learning? Thank you for that. And I appreciate you also including piece about Black folks not being a monolith. I feel like there's this mindset that we need to find one uniformed message. And I don't think that's particularly true. I think it, it comes from both sides, I think, both organizing groups. And I've heard it in electoral as well, that we need to unify around one candidate. And that's gone from like local politic to even like presidential. And it just, it doesn't sit great with me. Like I can appreciate how it might be something to leverage sometimes, but it shouldn't be the like ongoing practice. Like it should be about a welcoming yeah. of all voices versus like what will be the one thing that we say. Right, right. I know that, um, you know, some people, some folks will say that part of the reason that conservatives sometimes are pretty well organized is because they're sort of willing to sort of rally around each other and stick to the single story and just defend it at all costs. Um, and I can see why strategy wise, perhaps in some ways that's effective. And sometimes the left in particular is criticized for infighting. But my perspective is, and of course, there's definitely like litmus tests, purity culture, like whatever, there's stuff that's unhelpful in, in leftist spaces. I'm not trying to say that. But I do think that in leftist spaces, the fact that we have all this discourse, the fact that there is challenge and push and pull is not a weakness, it's a strength. And so I wish that we would, instead of trying to model ourselves after, honestly, a pretty fascist way of getting people organized and behind you that the right is demonstrating, I wish that we would lean into our own way, which is that the multiplicity of voices, the disagreement, the layers of... Um, experiences, even within, you know, even if we're just saying like within the black activist community, like there's so much diversity in those voices and that's a gift. It's not a liability, but we have to treat it that way and mine it that way. Something that one of my peers have said around the work that she does, she gives a lot of great free content around like content strategy and like so smart, but Anything that she includes, includes a little blurb of like, do not take this at face value, continue to do your own research. And I have always found that so not affirming, but it's really refreshing because, you know, we're, we're both recovering like manifestation babe following people. But I, I find that so refreshing because so much of like, do not like take my word for it. Or like, you don't know any better. And I see this in a lot of different places. And it's taken me some time to like, heal. Sure. And kind of reflect back on this. But like, I was raised Catholic. And my husband is a Lutheran seminarian. And I also have explored a lot of like alternative religion kind of things. So I feel like which is probably what makes the most sense for identifying me at this point. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like after reading cultish, which is a great book about everything from like Kool-Aid cult to like uh, CrossFit <laughs> as a cult, like the power of language. It, it's an amazing book. <laughs> like I, I can't recommend it enough. Yes. I've heard so many good things about this. Yes, I've heard so many good things about this. Um, and very quick read as well, because it builds on top of each other itself very well. But yeah, I feel like I uh, like leaders like y'all uh, are very affirming for me. Seeing kind of the stuff my friend has said is really affirming because there's like I'm a resource, but I'm not the only one. And I urge you to keep learning because I can't be the only opinion who that you internalize and take in. So yeah, I really value that. Yeah, I 
definitely as someone who grew up in sort of a more like conservative Christian culture, there was, there was like groups that I was a part of that I, this just like came back up to me, like bubbling up to the surface of my memories. When you were talking about this, there was literally something that the sort of people in charge would say, like if I would ask too many questions and they'd be like, we just really need you to trust our leadership on this. We just really need you to trust our leadership. Um, and I do think there is something to be said about um, acknowledging with humility that sometimes people who are in particular positions or having making certain decisions or have student or certain conversations might have more knowledge than, than you know, they're able to share for confidentiality reasons or or various other reasons, right? So I think there's something to be said about, yes, sometimes we have to trust our leaders. In this context, though, it was very much like the implication was asking questions or pushing back at all was somehow not trusting leadership and therefore divisive and therefore actually like unfaithful, right? Like not participating faithfully in our spiritual community. So, um, yeah, I I definitely appreciate. I also this is a thing that I'm not great at, but I the book was sort of a <laughs> a crash course in trying to learn how to do this. But I also really appreciate people who are um like wrong publicly and then like apologize and amend publicly and are really open about the fact that like they're still learning or they're gaining nuance or that they've shifted their opinions. That was something that was really scary for me about writing a book is like, wow, it's out there in black and white. And um, what five years from now, I'm going to look at it and I'm going to be like, oh man, this is not good. Or wow, I changed my mind on this. Or this is actually secretly problematic and how did nobody catch it? And now my name's on it forever. Right. Which is, you know, this feeling that I'm describing is it's white fragility, right? It's like my ongoing um need to like be one of the good ones or or lean into perfectionism which is a characteristic of white supremacy culture but so much of that has permeated so much of our society that it's like you said it's very refreshing when people are able to be like this is my experience these are my thoughts um it's a process here are the people i've learned for here's the questions i still have i want to hear your questions like what do you have to add to this conversation you can trust your experience. You can trust the other voices. Keep listening. Keep learning. Um, sort of like the continuing to ask questions isn't a threat to, I don't know, it's not disrespectful. It's not a threat to the process. It's it's a way of actually very respectfully and honestly and authentically engaging in all kinds of work. Definitely. And I know it was really, really hard, but I... I can hear as well that even though it was challenging to push through that, like I, I know I have felt similar things. I'm afraid of writing a book because like there's something different about book versus podcast. Yes. Right. 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 Or like blog or yeah. Right. Like someone on the Twitter could be like, and you said a messed up thing. Like what day is it in 2022? Right. And it's like 2025 and I'm like, yeah, I changed my mind actually. Or like yeah. if anybody who knows me but has been following along, they know that I changed my mind a long time ago on that. So I, I, I value that, but I think um, there's something beautiful about books about organizing or books about racial justice where what I'm seeing, like it's, and this is technical, but I think it's also important. Mm-hmm. Uh Ijeoma Olu's So You Want to Talk About Race, the most recent edition does include, I wrote about this this way, I have learned things, so now this is how we talk about it now. And that is so affirming and beautiful. And and yeah, I think we do need to allow ourselves to be wrong. You know, the thing about it is like to Mm -hmm. grow through it is the key thing. Because I think that's what mm-hmm. ends up being like the sticking yeah. point. And I I used to feel a certain way about cancel culture. And I even talk about that on like a podcast episode. Like, what does it mean to be accountable? What does it mean to do these things? Mm-hmm. I think some people could be canceled. But yeah, if we are treating each other with humanity and grace, we need to accept that people that are our favorites may do or say something that we don't like or... Right. Right. We all grow up. So yeah, yeah, I think I think that's something I've been marinating on a little bit here. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something I 
I do like exploring on the podcast is a couple of different topics, but I do love it. It's in the preamble, like changing your damn mind. I love changing my mind, doing something different. I I worry it makes me seem flaky, but I blame the Libra rising. It just means that I embrace perspectives. <laughs> so yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about how you've not just done that with your kind of theological work, but how, how, how do you feel you've metamorphosed as you've explored your identity? Oh my gosh. This is, I could say so many things. I feel like even actually right now in the past couple months, I'm like going through so many changes, but um, I will, and I will touch on that, but I wanted to also say like, I love this idea that you're like super into like changing your mind or transformation. Cause I think that's a really courageous perspective. Um, a lot of times, you know, especially on things that are deeply held beliefs such as, you know, quote unquote politics or religious beliefs or whatever stuff that people think are really core to their identity. It's really difficult for people to change their mind or even to receive new information on that because since it's such a deeply held belief that we think of as sort of part of ourselves, even like information that challenges that can feel like an attack, even if it's just, you know, sort of black and white data. Um, And so I learned from the Center for Story-Based Strategy actually, um, sort of from a change and organizing perspective that pure data alone for that reason doesn't really normally change many people's minds. What changes people is, is stories, right? Is being able to connect through stories. And I think part of the reason for that is that when we share our story, we're being really vulnerable and we're being really open and we're connecting on that human level, like you mentioned. And so if I'm like sort of open and vulnerable, then perhaps as you're listening, um, you can be open and vulnerable enough to consider changing your mind too, right? Like if our, if we connect on a story level, then we're not just sort of like hurling weird sort of misquoted data at each other, but we're talking about like this deep part of us, it opens it up a little bit for transformation. Um, and I think that actually relates a lot to some of the like, yeah, transformation that I'm going through right now. So I'm a PhD student, like, you know, and, um, I'm working particularly on bisexual theology, but this semester, one of the classes that I'm really focused on is on embodiment. And I think, you know, I've done a lot of work, quote unquote, (laughs) academically about embodiment for many years. I've read many books and written many papers, but I'm realizing more and more that there was a lot of things that I was sort of processing academically or cerebrally that were not um, part of like my felt sense in my body. And so I'm in this like really interesting trifecta right now um, where I'm sort of doing a lot of reading about embodiment, about processing trauma, about somatics, like all those things, right? All of, all of the body things. And I'm doing this academic reading um, about like how it works and why it works. And at the same time, I've been going to physical therapy with a really amazing physical therapist that I very much trust. And so, um, and I'm also in like sort of, you know, regular like therapy, like talk therapy, like mental health therapy. Right. And so I have this like trifecta where it's like, I'm really, um, sort of academically engaging this stuff. And then physically stuff is being moved around in me. And as I've learned academically about like, oh, trauma is stored in the body and it's released through the body and movement is essential in that. I'm like, for the first time, instead of just reading about it, like a robot, like beep, bop, bop, boop. Yes, that is true. In physical therapy, I'm like experiencing that. I'm experiencing muscles moving that have never moved before. And then an emotional release where this trauma bubbles to the surface and having, again, this amazing therapist to sort of process all that. And what's so wonderful is all three of these sort of experts and caretakers and, I don't know, guides in my life, uh, my professor, the therapist and the physical therapist, all of them are such um, gentle, supportive people that I can talk about the ways that these are interacting for me and how this is really changing and forming me. So I think um, I also, you know, it might also be clear that from a from my perspective, like as experience as an organizer, as an activist, um, as like a public faith leader in a Christian church, as a pastor, a lot of the work that I do often is like very external focused, very like out in the world, changing the world, community, society, structures, big picture, visions, dreams, all that stuff. And this kind of new focus for me, which is very much 
I also credit to Adrienne Marie Brown and Emergent Strategy and some of these other amazing thinkers who have helped me kind of get to this point. But the idea uh, that Grace Lee Boggs says about transform yourself to transform the world, right? So I think I'm in this place right now, a, a major chapter in my life where I'm still doing this public work. I'm still doing this external work, um, but maybe in a less, less in a way that's like frenzied to try to make myself okay or like externally focusing because I'm used to, because of, you know, the trauma in my past, I'm used to chaos. So I have to like seek out the chaos to feel normal. And then I have to sort of prove my goodness by doing the right things. Right. Um, I think in the past, there was a lot of me that was sincere about the sort of societal transformation and organizing work that I was doing. But there was definitely a part of me that was motivated by this, by being comforted in chaos and trauma as normal and being like sort of in a desperate place to try to prove myself as good enough. And so now I think I'm in this chapter of my life where I'm continuing to do this public work. I'm continuing to build these relationships, but I'm also settling into my body a little bit and um, not thinking of my own healing as something that is separate from the revolution, but something that is necessary, something that, uh, you know, emergent strategy teaches about fractals that even on the tiny cellular level, the, the things that we're doing, the patterns that we participate in, they, they echo out into the universe, into the cosmos. And so these small healing moments for me are important for me because I'm a person and like we all deserve healing and liberation. And it doesn't stop with me because it affects my relationships. And on some other level, as we repeat these patterns um, from the small level, it continues to echo out into society. So that's like my main, like my thing right now that I'm, you know, maybe in two more years, we'll like have another podcast interview and you'll be like, tell me more about this. And it'll be like way more fleshed out. Cause I'm like in it right now. Right. Of like, Oh my gosh, I have a body. And I knew that like sort of academically before, but now I'm like, Whoa, I'm in it. And I'm like feeling feelings instead of thinking about them and like experiencing healing instead of just talking about it. And Oh my gosh, like I am an individual that's part of a whole and those things are really important in both directions. So that's like the major major ongoing transformation that, as you can tell, I'm sort of like messily in the middle of right now. Oh, I mean, that's kind of the nature of it, though, is that it is going to be a messy process. Like, you know, it's not like antibiotics, like here, take this. And in theory, you won't have strep throat anymore. Like if it's if it's chronic, if it's been like long standing, we've talked a little bit about the kind of intergenerational aspect of like, if there's trauma in the parent who is like carrying the child, then yeah. here are these things that you may be more predisposed to because yeah. you were exposed to stress, cortisol, all of that has an impact. Yeah. You yeah. know, just on that scientific level alone, not even touching on the spiritual aspect of right. like already being exposed to trauma in and of itself. Yeah. So yes. I. Absolutely. I feel like it's so hard. It's like being in the eye of a hurricane. You don't really know yeah. that you're in the hurricane if you're just right in it, but right. you can tell like stuff's happening. It's looking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah look a little weird out there. I, I'll wait. Yeah, stuff is happening. <laughs> stuff is happening. Totally. Yeah. I think too, um, when you were like, this isn't like strep throat, you take an antibiotic and it gets better. I think I just remember, um, I was going to say early on in my sort of like journey in therapy, but it wasn't that early. It's just that I've been in therapy for so long now. I started going to therapy regularly when I was 19. And this was probably when I was like um, 27 or something. And I'm like, you know, 34 now. So it's like, <laughs> there's there's been many chapters in this. But I remember being in therapy, um, particularly around my eating disorder, which is now mostly in remission. And I remember talking to my therapist who, you know, like focused on eating disorders. And I was sort of like, you know, when I got this diagnosis, I went to the library, I got every book on it and I tried to read about it and understand it. And I did all this research and I, you know, talked to all these experts and da, da, da. And I had really in my head somehow thought that I could logic my way out of my eating disorder. Like if I really just learned enough about it, there was gonna be some secret passcode or some secret key. There'd be some sort of like geometry proof in my head I could do to talk myself out of an eating disorder, which is not how that works. Right. And, um, in fact, like almost the opposite, right? Like it was really easy to then go down a shame spiral, sort of like shame about shame. Like not only do I feel shame about 
you know, my body, myself, my out of control world, which is feeding this eating disorder. I also feel shame about the fact that I have a eating disorder. I also feel shame about the fact that I think I should be able to logic myself out of this eating disorder and I can't, right? Like it's just, it's compounded. And so, um, you know, healing for me, I, I, to me, it really does help to have some of like the theoretical or academic sort of cerebral framework um, to help make some of the mind-body connections. But it really is like, yeah, you have to feel feelings to feel them. You have to like live, live life to live it. It, it has to, it's, it's not like there's a antibiotic for um, some of these issues. It's a lot messier, like you said. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Like, this is even before we had a name for it, but I struggled with orthorexia for a while. And mm-hmm, part of why yeah. that's so easy to fall into, it's still kind of picking up speed, I think. Like people are understanding that that, it, that even is an eating disorder. Okay. Yes. And it's because it looks just like regular diet culture or like regular like nutrition advice. It's like the dark side though. Like that I would go to yoga because yoga is good for you, but I wouldn't eat anything because I didn't want to eat anything bad for me on the way home. And yeah, the punishing of the body thinking like only good in because we can't have bad happen. So I think that's the other layer of it too. Like why it's so messy is because we have these other, other institutional factors that are reinforcing it or making it very easy to not even realize that we're in the middle of, of a mess that we now have to clean up or get out of in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So much of this too, um, for me, I've been thinking a lot about alienation, right? Like the fact it's so wild that I have to like relearn that I am a body and that I am embodied. Right. Um, but it's because, of these systems of oppression, this indoctrination, all of the ways that this shows up in our culture, even in subtle ways that are just so accepted, like diet culture that you mentioned. It's like, there's so, there's so many things that alienate us from ourselves. And like, (laughs) having to, even to the most basic sort of idea that diet culture, white supremacy, cis heteropatriarchy, capitalism have alienated us from our very selves so much that like embodiment um coming home to ourselves is like something that we have to even do because we've been so alienated from ourselves and um i've been thinking about that too kind of from a even from kind of like a marxist perspective right um which marxist perspective was more around labor the fact that you know many of us there's that saying like you don't hate mondays you hate capitalism right many of us hate the work that we do because we're coerced into it with violence, because in this country and in capitalism, if you don't work, then you don't get health insurance. If you don't work, then you can't feed yourself. You can't house yourself. And so um, the work that we do, the labor that we do, we, first of all, don't get to enjoy the fruits of that labor because it's exploited by capitalists. But also we're doing this work under extreme coercion and, and, and under duress, right, with threats of physical harm to our bodies. And so thinking about that, you know, I, I was familiar with that from a labor perspective. Um, but thinking more again in this embodiment stuff about how all of that is related to bodies and how I think for me, uh, capitalism and all these systems, yes, have alienated me from my labor and also from my body, my sense of self, from my sexuality, from my relationships, all of these, from exercise. Like I hate that I was so alienated from exercise because I was sort of coerced under cis heteropatriarchy and capitalism that if you don't have the right kind of body, which is a very narrow white supremacist, thin beauty ideal through the male gaze, then you're worthless, right? And so exercise became, yes, this thing to punish and control and to fit into a very narrow sort of ideal and so like this thing movement that is like so natural and life-giving, you know, on, on many levels, exercise or not, like becoming, I became alienated from movement, from, you know, cooking healthy food, you know, all of these things are super embodied experiences that should be joyful and liberating, but these systems of oppression have so alienated us uh, from ourselves and from these just like really natural life-giving processes. 
And that makes me think of something else. I don't know if I've sent you this book. I, we sent, I send you a lot of books. <laughs> um, uh, who is wellness for? You have definitely at least mentioned this to me. So I need to, I need okay. to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, it's such a beautiful perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, also queer women of color yes. and just chronically ill. Like as I read through the first um, chapter, it's like me and my allergies and my like mom trauma. I'm like, did I write this book? I was gonna be like, it's like it me. <laughs> like, like, I was going to say, I'm like it all of us as we're reading it. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I see a lot of parallels between what you're saying and what she posits, which is, our wellness is you know we like Malcolm X said that too like Mm -hmm. illness you take the I out we wellness like we need to be interconnected about it Mm -hmm. and just just like the shame that we feel about taking care of ourselves is something that I think is so palatable Mm -hmm. and especially if you have multiple needs Mm -hmm. basically the more needs that you have the more things you have to take care of and address perhaps the more shame you feel because now you're needy right. versus having needing support. Like, mm-hmm. like I used to feel a certain way about like, I almost didn't go back to yoga. And then my husband and I did the number stuff, mm-hmm. meaning I gave him my, my chase app and said, you look at it and mm-hmm. let me know mm-hmm. if I can afford yoga. Yeah, and yeah. even then it's like, even if we like couldn't afford it, we would figure it out because that's a spiritual practice for you. It's grounding. It's moving your body. I have asthma as well. So there's like the strengthening aspect. So like the fact that you need to pay for these things, like is an added layer of like the guilt feeling of like, now it's a luxury when it should be for everybody, but we can't do the radical life-changing work we want to do if we aren't taking care of ourselves. And a certain degree too, I think if we don't embody it now, like get in our bodies and feel it now, mm-hmm. whenever we get to like the liberated world that we're dreaming of, we're not going to know what to do. <laughs> right. We have to practice. Like we have to, we have to, yeah. Like sort of using that, like a almost like exercise or movement metaphor. It's like, this is a, this is a muscle that we have to strengthen every moment of our lives is a dress rehearsal for, for the revolution. We won't know how to live a liberated life. It reminds me of, um, in, as you know, in the ELCA, which is the church that I'm a pastor in and, um, your partner is a seminary and a candidate for ministry. in. there's this whole process where you have to sort of like prove and legitimize yourself as like good enough for the church. It's very toxic. And um, many people give the advice to people going through that process of sort of keep your keep your head down, don't cause trouble, don't make waves, kiss those asses. And then once you're ordained, then you can like be your full self, right? Um, and besides the fact that I don't think that's a process with much integrity, what I always said was, how in the world are we going to practice four or five, however many years of seminary and training? How are we going to practice being cowards and being small? And then one day just be out in the world as public faith leaders and think we just will somehow know how to be courageous because there's always going to be the next thing to be afraid of, right? Next, it'll be like, well, what if no church will hire me? And then after that, it'll be, well, what if they fire me, right? Like there's, there's endless amounts of sort of like threats and we have to at some point choose to be courageous, to practice liberation, to focus on the goodness of our bodies for ourselves and for our community. Like there's these things that if we like every day is sort of like practice and the dress rehearsal for liberation, for the revolution. And so, um, you know, again, I feel like I'm just like, we should like tag Adrienne Marie Brown in this podcast because I'm about to like say another emergent strategy thing. But when she says, you know, the things that you pay attention to grow, right? Like where you put your energy, your focus, like that's where we are going. That's what's going to flourish. And so if we kind of, if we put our energy and focus into caring for ourselves, not thinking of self-care, community care as luxury, but as necessity, then hopefully we can grow into a world where that's true. But if we continue to sort of, yeah, practice not doing those things, then like those muscles don't get stronger. We can't sort of show up in the world in that way because we're out of practice. You know, it, it's still spooky season when we're recording this. I have I have said Stephen King's name so much that I may <laughs> owe him money. 
by the time <laughs> they're done. So that it's just this yes. is one of those episodes. Yes. Um, you know, thank you. I I have my closing question before we we wrap up today, and that is, what is one thing that you wish people asked about you that they don't that you wish would come up more often? I think um, this is maybe silly, but I think so often I am so like lucky basically or like hashtag blessed. Seriously, I'm so lucky to be in these spaces where I'm always around faith leaders, spiritual leaders, witches, activists and organizers, like liberationists, somatic healers, social workers, like all of these people who like all we do all the time is sort of like, I don't know eat, sleep and breathe. Like, how can we heal? How can we help each other? How can we change the world? Like, let's go. And I think I wish that more times, and you do like, I mean, you do this like in our personal relationship. Um, but like, I wish more times, like I was asked about like silly things or about pleasure or, um, I won't say guilty pleasures. Cause like, I don't think we should feel guilty about uh, things that bring us pleasure, but you know, like there's definitely like so much of my life and your life is about this work. And also it's like, I really love designing a good charcuterie board or I am a sucker for some true crime spooky season or not three, six, five, basically, you know, like some of these, um, I don't know, like I wish, I think, you know, little kids ask each other sometimes stuff like what's your favorite color. And I don't feel like some of those fun questions, which for me is like a, a like a dusty rose or a mauve or something, right. is my favorite color. But, um, I feel like we don't talk about those, like the, those kind of things, things that feel, um, light and, um, joyful and still in some ways like very illuminating about like who we are. I think that is something that in some movement spaces I experience, but in other movement spaces, like, I don't always feel like I get to be a whole person. So that's something I really appreciate about you, Emmy, is like you like pay attention to those things in people. So um, I feel like I just answered a bunch of questions. Like I like charcuterie. I like true crime. I like pink, whatever. But like, you know, I think those kind of questions, those like humanizing conversations um, in spaces where we're usually talking about like the very serious work of liberation. Uh, I wish we asked some of those questions more. Yeah, thank you. And I'm so glad that that makes you feel held because I think I think a lot of that for me stems from having having a lot of different things that I like that I'm told are not allowed to coexist. Yes, yeah. So I do think I I love going out of my way to find out what else people like because mm -hmm. I I'm so curious about like what exists when you're not on because I, and it isn't even a matter of like we're performing, but I think I talk a lot about archetypal embodiment. So I really love that we ended up going down that road with you talking about, you know, somatic embodiment, like didn't, didn't plan it, but it worked out beautifully. But yeah, I think it, it doesn't mean that you're performing your identity or like living a lie in any way. It's that for survival or because it is serious, but yeah, I think there's a humanizing aspect. And on one hand, I love like being spooky, babe, but I f there's a reason why I say like Elvira and Stephen King are my archetypes because like I, I will be the nerd in a t-shirt and pants, <laughs> like writing for too long and then going, I need coffee, but also like look cute, be a vibe, just all of the above, like the, smush them together and then you Absolutely. make me. So <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Do you have, yeah. What is your favorite color? Is it black? Oh, it's pink. Did it? Oh my gosh. Stop. Same. <laughs> That's like, why I'm like dusty rose. I'm like, oh, I also like Adam, my partner is, um, he was an art major in undergrad and you would think that like, he would be really particular about colors, but like he's not. So I get so frustrated when I'm like, I can tell the difference between like a blush, a dusty rose, a mauve, and I have opinions, right? And he's like, it's pink, right? Or whatever. So, um, so anyway, like I would discuss colors, favorite colors all day, every day. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks for like indulging me. It's kind of fun that we both are pink girls, pink femmes. Pink, yeah. Are you a femme? What would you, what would you say for yourself? Pink human, I guess. Pink I, human. I mostly thought like, 
oh, it must be a bi thing. <laughs> it's totally. Like, yeah, like the, the millennial pink. And I'm like, no, yes. it's our flag. <laughs> it's the flag. Best flag, Best for flag. sure. I had someone, um, someone I know who's like, sort of uses for themselves by and pan interchangeably. I know like many of us have sort of like different nuanced reasons. We use various identifiers, queer or pan by all these different things. Right. Um, but this person, they use pan and by interchangeably, but they tend to use by more. And when I asked them why they were like, honestly, the, the colors are better. Like I love <laughs> the by flag colors. They're just awesome. So, but there's pink in the pan flag too. And I'm sure there's people who would go hard for the pan flag colors, but I am partial to that bisexual flag. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Elle. I, it's been a delight talking to you as always. I please tell the people how they can find you. If you have anything going on in the next handful of months, please share mm-hmm. or at the very least mm-hmm. how they can keep up with your work. Yeah. Yeah. So you can find my website, which is ldowd.com. And on my website, there are, there's collaboration request forms. There's a calendar where you can see where I'm doing workshops or preaching. And there's also links to some of my blogs and sermon manuscripts. You can also find me on the socials, uh, facebook.com slash ministry and TikTok. My handle is ministry And I'm also on the ELCA Young Adults TikTok as a uh, part of their collective. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at how now Brown Dowd. Before I was married, my last name was Brown and then, you know, now it's Dowd. So how now Brown Dowd is uh, Twitter, Instagram and Snap. So um, I'm really not hard to get a hold of on these interwebs. So always feel free. I love to hear from folks. Feel free to reach out, DM me, whatever. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much, Elle. Have a beautiful night. Yes, you too. That's all for today's episode, everyone. If you're listening in an Apple podcast and you like what you heard, please leave a written five-star review. If you're tuning in on other platforms like Spotify, please still give us a five-star rating. It really helps the podcast. And if you've been listening for a while and you haven't done so already, subscribe. And please do share this episode with even one person that you think would benefit from today's topics on The Violet Vulture. Again, you can keep up with me on Instagram at LaSoyEmmy, my website, SoyEmmy.com, or you can add it to my newsletter. I hope to keep seeing you on the internet. That's all for today, friends. Thank you for tuning in to The Violet Vulture. Bye for now.